0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: Look, Bumble knows
0: you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and, 6-1 since that matters, and, what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new
1: Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
0: All right. Hello, everybody. How are you? This is Brad Listy. This is The Other People Show. I am in Los Angeles, California, and it is good to be with you. Today on the program... My guest is Anna Cana Schofield, author of the novel Bina.
1: And Bina is a very unique character in, in fiction because she's not looking for a boyfriend. Like, she's done, she's, she's had enough. Basically, Bina has had e- enough. She's like a fantastic volcano. You know what I mean? And she just like gives out and. And you know, she's a woman in her own right, living a life. On her terms.
0: That was Anna Kana Schofield, and her new novel, Bina, is available now from the New York Review of Books. Bina has been generating a lot of acclaim. It was shortlisted for the Goldsmiths Prize, which is awarded annually to a piece of fiction that breaks the mold or extends the possibilities of the novel form. Anna Schofield's other books include the critically acclaimed novel Martin John, which was shortlisted for the Giller Prize, among others, and was a New York Times editor's choice. Schofield's debut novel, Malarkey, won the Amazon Canada First Novel Award and was a finalist for the Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. Anna Cana's writing and reviews have appeared in a wide variety of publications, including The Guardian, The Irish Times, The Globe and Mail, The National Post, and more. She lives up in Canada, in Vancouver, and I will be in conversation with her in just a bit. Today's episode is brought to you by Atria, publisher of the memoir, Bomb Shelter, Love, Time, and Other Explosives by Mary Laura Philpott. It is due out on April 12th, and it is a poignant and powerful book, that tackles the big questions, life, death, existential fear, all of it, and it does so with humor and with hope. That is Bomb Shelter by Mary Laura Philpot, available from the good people at Atria. Okay, so I do want to thank some people for pre-ordering my new novel. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is due out on May 10th. And you can pre-order it right now, I hope you will, over at bradlisty.com. It's all right there. Whichever bookseller you prefer, you can use. And if you pre-order the book and send me a screenshot of your proof of purchase, I will send you a note and another people sticker in the mail, and I will give you a shout-out right here on this podcast in the monologue. Big thanks this week to Nicole Nelson, Cameron Walker, Stephanie Johnson, and John Tormey. I appreciate it, you guys. Thank you very, very much. Once again, the novel is called "Be Brief and Tell Them Everything." It is a work of autofiction, due out on May tenth. You can pre-order at bradlisty.com. Otherwise, what can I tell you? Oh, I have some good news. The supply chain issues that have been plaguing basically every industry in recent times, including the publishing industry these supply chain issues will not be affecting the release date of my novel. It will come out as scheduled on May 10th. Everything's good with the printer. So I'm very pleased about that. Another reminder that I will be guesting on this program. I'm going to be a guest on my own podcast. Sort of feels like something I should do. And there will be a guest host who shall remain nameless for now. It's going to be a surprise. I'm also doing some events surrounding the launch of my book. On Monday, May 9th, I will be launching the novel at Chevalier's Books in Los Angeles, California. That will be an in-person event unless COVID goes crazy. And then on Thursday, May 12th, I will be in conversation with Chelsea Hodson for a virtual event for Powerhouse Arena in Brooklyn. On Tuesday, May 17th, I will be doing a virtual event with Leah Dietrich for Exile in Bookville, an indie in Chicago. On Tuesday, May 24th, I'm going to be doing a virtual event with Matthew Clark Davison, and that is for Booksmith in San Francisco. And then on Sunday, June 5th, I will be reading in person at Stories, Books, and Cafe in Los Angeles for an autofiction reading series hosted by Caitlin Forst. So I will be adding more events as they come uh, online Don't forget to to subscribe to my email newsletter. You can do that at bradlisty.com. Just click on email newsletter in the sidebar. You can also subscribe to the newsletter at this show's official website, otherppl.com. It goes out once a week. That's it. And it just uh, shares some links, essentially. It's a list of nine things that I'm finding interesting each week. So my guest today is Anna Cana Schofield. Her new novel, Bina, is available now from the New York Review of Books, and it is a singular work of fiction. I think it's safe to call it that. I had such a nice time meeting Anna Cana Schofield and talking with her about her book, her life, and her writing. So without any further ado, here she is, folks. This is Anna Cana Schofield, And her new book, One More Time, is called Bina.
1: The character Bina was a residual character in my first novel, Malarkey. Right. She was uh, the best friend of uh, the main character in Malarkey. And in fact, if we really begin at the beginning, then I should talk about the fact that um, the reason I got the idea to write a novel about Bina came actually from a book review of that first book. I think a journalist had written she thought Beiner would make a a great character for a book. But for some reason, when I went to look for what this journalist said, I might have misquoted it. So I might have imagined that this person said it. Because I subsequently did an interview when Biner came out and this college radio guy was very hard on me. Like, I've looked for this quote and it's not there. So, you know, the novelist they just make things up. But I recall the journalist um an irish journalist joanne i can't recall her surname because i'm 50 but she mentioned something about bina being a great i feel like she said bina be a great character for a novel in her own right apparently she didn't say that and so i hadn't really thought about that so i actually thought initially after malarkey i thought i would write a novel about bina but i ended up writing a novel about another residual character in the first book called beirut uh which was the book martin john and then I kind of, then Bina kind of stayed with me. One particular line actually stayed with me, which was in malarkey, she tells our woman, our woman is in the psychiatric ward and she tells, Baina tells our woman, don't let them put anything in your mouth and don't let them put anything up the other end either. And I just thought that was a very, very, probably good piece of advice. I mean...
0: So, okay, so it's interesting to me that you did not have in your head as you were writing Malarkey, like a kind of universe of novels built from the various characters who appear. Like this is something that you've kind of worked your way toward like by discovery rather than having like a preconceived idea of it.
1: Oh, God, yes. Like I had no, I don't have any preconceived ideas. My <laughs> God, like I can barely find the fridge. I can barely turn on the kettle. There's no preconceived ideas happening over here. God, no, I wish there were. God, if I'd preconceived ideas, Jesus, I'd have so many books.
0: Well, instead but of that. But the <laughs> you you have to look back on Malarkey and and think, wow, like there was so much in that book. The the fact that I've been able to extract entire other novels from these more minor characters that existed in that novel, like that was quite a world.
1: Yeah, actually, it's a good point. I'm glad you're pointing this out to me because I hadn't really thought about it. But yeah. Well done, me! <laughs> well done, me! For milking it as far as I could. No, um, it really wasn't strategic at all. I just—I mean, throughout the novel, Bina, you know, there are footnotes. So I've had this strangely—I've had this ongoing relationship with the footnote. So in the first book, Malarkey, there's one single footnote, and it says, "See Martin John." What does it say? See, Martin John, a footnote novel. I'm pretty sure that's what it says. So it's a single footnote. And then I wrote, which is weird, because it was just self-provocation, right? Like I I then, because like I said, I thought I was going to write a novel about Diana. So even as I put that footnote in the book, I don't know what I was thinking. Probably actually, if you go through most of my books, you'll probably find many moments where you'll think, what was she thinking? (laughs) we... (laughs) We just keep going forward. There's this new surrealist technique called don't look back. (laughs) You might get worried if you look back. Um, So then when I wrote Martin John, I got this idea that I had this idea that I would write. Well, I just figured that there would be a novel out there. It was a single footnote to another book. But actually, I don't think I could find one. So then I wrote one. And then when I wrote Bina, weirdly, it's like full of these footnotes. So there's no footnotes in Martin John. So Martin John is essentially one big footnote to malarkey. Um, But they told me that my publisher said take, because it was called a footnote novel. But my publisher at the time told me take a footnote novel off the title because um, it suggests this book is... I don't remember what the editor said, something like subservient or whatever. Now, I must admit, I'm pretty feisty, so I don't usually, uh, you know, agree to do anything they ask me to do. But for some reason, they must have got me on a cold day. (laughs) And and so, actually, it was Malarkey, a novel in episodes. Martin John, a footnote novel. And then Biner, a novel in warnings. But the footnotes throughout Biner, like... I just throughout, and it's like this idea of kind of like a leaky brain like maybe it's age because we've just I just learned this morning I'm generation x and you know we have this like spillage in the brain where you're often like trying to find the words or trying to find your keys <laughs> um, trying to figure out what planet you're living on so I like that idea that that, that those footnotes will kind of be like the kind of you call that tray in the fridge where you know the water drips down they don't have it anymore it's very annoying but like i don't know in 1950 you just have a little tray and it would catch like i don't know the defrosting the defrosted water. so to some extent now that i think about it those footnotes are basically the defrosted water of viner's brain got it
0: yeah i'm the same way i can't remember a lot of things in ways that sometimes trouble me (laughs) I wish I had one of these steel trap memories
1: it's a it's a new literary form you know (laughs) it's it hasn't even it hasn't even been like explored properly yet but it's gonna start right especially if writers live longer you know
0: well this is a novel that's really darkly funny but it's also a novel that I read you or at least one of the reasons that you wrote it is because you felt that we are not having intelligent conversations about death
1: i think they're getting better i do think they're getting better i think people's expression of grief is uh is much healthier than it has been historically why i think maybe because we're well okay this is a total you know abstract thesis maybe just because we're living longer So maybe we have longer to think about dying. Uh, Also, I just think we're becoming more emotionally intelligent. Well, I did think that before I did online dating. So, (laughs) obviously, anybody who's ever done online dating realizes we're actually, no, we're definitely not becoming more emotionally intelligent. We're actually possibly at our most stupid point ever in history. (laughs) But, um, But we are getting better. I think we're getting better at talking about death. And I say this because I wrote an essay that the New York Times published back in February, and it was called, Where Do the Dead Go in Our Imaginations? And I got such an outpouring of, of letters and messages and really some strange offers of advice, which I didn't follow up. Um, but generally, I got the most incredible, very moving responses and I, I kind of expected I was going to get cancelled in America because, you know, it was discussing medical assistance in dying. And so, but when I got all these like beautiful messages and it was so moving and I thought, oh no, no, people really, really do want to think about, they really do want to think about. And I think COVID, COVID has just broken us in a whole new way because people are, haven't been able to even real time mourn. They haven't been there when their loved ones are dying. They haven't, you know, somebody's gone to hospital and you've just never seen them again. So, we, I mean, I mean, I'm loath to, you know, the pandemic is going to be a whole, it's going to need a whole, you know, I think it's going to need a whole psychiatric movement to, for us to understand.
0: Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature.
1: Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy
0: price, price line. I want to circle back, uh, and we're going to get deeper into the novel, but I do want to circle back to that essay that you wrote for the New York Times because I read it—the one about you know death and mm. the the right to die, which is part of it. But I think another part of it, unless I'm misremembering, is the. Grief that you have been feeling over the loss of your friend over the past several years who committed suicide, is that right
1: well it 's not the only friends i 've lost, you know, and like i said i I want us to have more intelligent conversations about dying. I feel like i've thought a lot about dying most of my life, which is pretty unusual. but
0: why is that
1: and well, I lost my father when I was very small. And so, you know, when you're a small child and you lose a parent or you lose somebody, you you know, your introduction to life is death. So you kind of meet the concept of death much more rapidly um, and you are forced to contemplate that people die. Right. I mean, I guess most kids, many people do. And COVID is again, COVID is is, ha, has catapulted many children, you know, to, to, through the loss of their parents or the loss of their, their caregivers. So that's one reason. Um, I've also lost a, I've lost a few people, actually, to suicide and also to, you know, cancer, the robber. Yeah, I mean, I've just known a lot of people who've died. At least it feels like that. So I wanted to... You know, I guess I also really wanted to talk about how that kind of undoes you in a way, because you know, even if you, I mean, even for those people who do have, like, like this is what what I th- why I think medical assistance in dying is really intelligent and great. I mean, obviously not great because we don't want we don't want people dying. Periods, but I think that the the patient has like autonomy, some autonomy. And so, you know, I've just been interested in like, well, what would have happened if I'd been able to have a conversation with my friend? What if we'd been, what if I had known what her thoughts were on suicide, you know, but I didn't know any of those things. I didn't have any of those reference points. And so when you lose somebody, you start kind of going back in your mind, looking for clues. And inevitably You've, you've failed that person, and I find like the I find it a little chumpish the way that we, we say things like, "Oh, you can't blame yourself." Well, what kind of a friend are you if you don't blame yourself right like,
0: I've, like, I've lost somebody to suicide as well, so I know exactly what you're speaking of. like I've had those exact same thoughts
1: Yeah, like of course you are to blame. I mean, maybe you're not like directly. You know, you didn't like stand there and coach them. But of course you're to blame on some. Well, we're all like responsible because somehow that person felt so alone um, or so like desperate or, or just such pain that the only thing they really wanted was the pain to end. And somehow we didn't, we weren't able to let them know that they want that pain to end not necessarily their life. That said, there are people as well who do want their lives to end. You know, I'm not speaking for every single person because that would be ridiculous. And so when I think about that, I I do, or maybe it's also the nature of artists that we examine and examine. And one of the things that I really learned from that particular death, and like I say, there have been a few, but that particular death was that it's the most unlikely, sometimes it's the most unlikely person. It's like the quiet one who's suffering silently, the person that like gives and gives and gives and then doesn't take. And then when they take, they just take it all. And you know, it's something that you just, I don't believe you'll ever really truly come to terms with it. I, I mean, I can't imagine what it must be like for a parent or a partner or a sibling because I don't think, and I think that we've been kind of cavalier about this, in that we we say like that. Well, don't blame yourself, or and and I don't think that's reasonable. I think, well, why not? Why not stare it down? Why not look at what this is and what this means, and and why not try to? I mean, it sounds kind of cavalier to say it, but just try to do better. Like try to fail better, as Beckett said and that was just what i have struggled with and i continue to struggle with it it was actually her her birthday recently it was a very significant birthday and um you know you just don't you're not i don't so yeah anyway it's it's very hard and also people who lose somebody are isolated with that like maybe i think it helps if somebody if if someone who's known like in a family, because you can kind of keep that person alive. But sometimes it might be someone who you just know yourself and not your other groups or friends or don't intersect. And that's a, that's a, that's a really lonely place. And the, the trouble is that then it can start to feel like the person never existed. Like, so if you can just like move along from somebody, then it starts to feel like, well, did that person ever even exist? And then, of course, you, start, you extend that and think, OK, well, when I die, like basically people just going to be moving along and be like, you know, and I'm not trying to preempt it. Like, I'm not trying to get like a good funeral going on, like hopefully a few <laughs> years early. I'm not trying to guilt people into like, you know, writing pieces in The New York Times. But I mean, I jest. But do you know what I mean? Like. There's just so much. Also, you know, the things that really bothers me. There's so much focus on romantic love. Why isn't there focus on dying? Why don't, why do we have modern love column and we don't have modern death column? Like, what's up with that? This is a waste of time. I don't want to read any more modern love. Thank you very much. I'm done. I don't want any more messages about who you met in the lift. I don't want any more messages about he turned out to be a crypto scammer or she turned out to be, (laughs) she told me she was the queen of Prussia. I'm standing at the train station in Prussia and I don't find, you know, where's Prussia? like. So I'm kind of curious about that. Like, well, okay, so we'll keep going on and on about, moder- about modern romantic love. I find romantic love very weaponized, actually, especially against women. Uh, and but maybe by women even. Oh, God, I'm going to get canned for saying that. But, um, <laughs> but why, why aren't, where's the death? Why aren't people worked up about dying? I think. Why listen, why are you so excited about falling in love? Uh,
0: I understand. Not
1: about dying. Well, Talk th- to me about this.
0: I think that people like to read about like happy stories of people falling in love, and I think people are scared of death. I think in general it's an uns an unpleasant thing for most people to contemplate. But I am in agreement with you that we need to stare it down. I think it's not healthy for people to. Deny it, or repress it, or turn away from it, because then, when we are inevitably confronted with it, I think it terrifies us all the more. I think we have to look at it. It's a, it's a, uh, you know, an obvious part of life, and it is an inevitability. So it seems foolish to spend as much time as we do, kind of ignoring it. And then the second thing I would say is that, in addition to there needing to be a modern death column in the New York Times. I think we need to do a better job of talking to our children about death. Like it's not even part of our curriculum or our education, this fact of death and what it is and how it happens and how we should reckon with it. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it's something that's completely absent from my youth and education.
1: Do you know how terrible that must be for the children who lose their parents? And there's a lot of children whose parents die. This is not uncommon. Like, I can recall several in my son's school where parents died. So that child doesn't have any, as you say, they don't have any framework other than obviously what the, the family gives them. Even if you think about the church, like the Catholic church has a, you know, I actually kind of admire the way that the Catholic church um, does funerals and, and grieving because there's a process, right. That kicks in and, especially in in ireland in rural ireland like i think actually they do death and burial i think they do the burial part of it very well because you have the wake right if you think about the church what's the role like there's a role for say like a grieving widow like a widow or a widower but there's no acknowledgement within the church of children So you're just sort of sort of sort of bouncing around like a balloon or a ball trying to make sense of a circumstance that's so, you know, it's very grave. It's very it's a huge thing to try to look at as a child, which, of course, you don't look at because you're a child. And so you carry the burden of that and then you spend the rest of your life trying to understand it. May I ask,
0: may I ask how your father died when you were so young?
1: Oh, he had a heart attack which is another reason why I'm kind of furious with anti-vaxxers because, you know, you know, he was like 37 or something very young and he had a heart attack and, and he died. And, you know, imagine like what we would have given for him to live, you know, if they said, well, you know, here, we'll give you this injection. We'll give you this treatment and you'll live another five years or whatever, you know? So, you know what's been really interesting? On Reddit, there are nurses who have, like, there's a, a nurse, I know it's like forward slash nursing. And it's very interesting to look at nurses describing what they've been dealing with in terms of the pandemic. And in, especially in terms of, like, you know, anti, like, I, I don't want to say, I mean, I find the word anti-vax are very kind of final. I would say vaccine resistors or vi- hesitant, right? Because I think that again, there's just something going on, but maybe it's just been perpetual. Cause if you go look at like the 30 years war or something, you know, it went on for a long time. I feel like the human psyche has always kind of, it's just always available for, for conflict. It just loves conflict. Um, I mean, even when people are getting along, they just love conflict. Like they just can't wait to, to, you know, have some crazy fallout or other. Um, so reading some of those stories and, and you know, what's very strange, even though I've like done this year in healthcare and obviously I feel fairly impassioned uh, about the subject and the subject of dying. Every time I read a story about somebody who was a vaccine hesitant person dying, it just breaks my heart. It just absolutely breaks my heart. It was a beautiful kind of paragraph that somebody had put on a forum and it said, you know, Today I lost my cousin. You know, he made some bad decisions, but he didn't deserve this. And I thought, wow, like, yeah, that person is their favorite cousin. That's not like Mad Ralph the anti-vaxxer. That's like my uncle Ralph, who I used to play ping pong with. And, And I just thought that was so, like, just so sad. So even though, like, we seem to divide into angry and angrier right now. But you can find, like, within it, these pockets where your humanity just kind of re- re-enters the equation. And, and you know, yeah, like some spitting, honking, obnoxious truck driver, the, the sad, sad part is, God forbid that that person does succumb to COVID, because that is somebody's favourite uncle. Don't you think that that's kind of an interesting metaphor as well, just for fiction and literature? That... that humans are deeply complicated deeply. yet we've we've started to reduce them to bad very bad even worse like disastrous <laughs> very 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 disastrous <laughs> like, unbelievably i couldn't like you know you mean somebody like trump or whatever It's like okay you know is this person made in a lab like how did this happen right <laughs> right yeah, like, and and yet i just think well that's kind of the isn't that the the kind of oats of fiction and it's actually really bad right now because real life has just like overtaken it and fiction just can't compete
0: well let's turn back to bina uh which is such a unique novel and seems to be a book that found its form through character because it's such a novel of voice the entire thing is her voice and it is such a unique voice and so I think about the form of the book and the way that there is often a lot of white space and how she is writing this through, like like the way it's described is she's writing this like on the back of, you know, like her electric bill or on the back of a receipt or whatever. So there's these little kind of fragments that she's accumulating as she tells her story. And I'm just w- wanting to know a little bit more about how you arrived at this. And like like when did it become clear to you that this was the case like did you did you come up with the idea that she was writing in bits and scraps on the backs of pieces of paper first and then the novel finds its form as an outgrowth of that or was the novel kind of unfolding on the page in this manner and then you sort of found that plot convention or that that piece of the plot to make it all kind of click
1: Well, first of all, thank you for saying such kind, warm things about my bina. You know, it's not easy to write books like this. Like, There's definitely easier ways to write books. There's definitely more sensible ways to write books, especially if you actually plan on selling any books, you know, and having any readers. You know, that said, I think one of the most amazing things about humans is uh, readers are ambitious, you know, that the human brain, the human brain loves language. It doesn't matter how many times you text me. There's nothing like a voice, right? There's nothing like the sound of somebody just breaking their whole laughing. Like there's just nothing like it. And you're just not, you know, the human voice will always somehow come out. It's become a little muted, I think, with social media, but not always. I mean, some of the most hysterical things you read are on newspaper comment section. I mean there's some really funny people. So to answer your question before I go off on yet another totally irrelevant tangent. Um <laughs> sorry, I'm kind of a pain to interview from this point of view, but there's a lot to be said for free association. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's so interesting when people are, when when you're asked these questions because it's kind of foggy and it's really difficult to know. I think that like even when you say it's a voice novel like, I don't, I just don't have any real clue what I'm doing. It's not like I, but one thing that does interest me is the form. So I half like right now I'm writing a novel or, you know, forgetting to go to wedding dinners, tra- failing to write a novel as well as failing to show up for, you know, social events. Um <laughs> And I always struggle a lot. I wrestle a lot thinking about form, thinking about form, thinking about objects, thinking, I don't know. I I wonder actually if there's like, I should get a brain scan and there's like maybe like a mushroom or something happening in my brain because it's a very strange way to work. But like I say, there's nothing logical about human beings. There's nothing logical. There's nothing rational. Like it does not make sense to, you know, for Vlad to go marching on the Ukraine like just stop it it's not bad that's a bad idea but you know if it wasn't there it would be somewhere it's somewhere else in the world or it's like the person next door or it's just like somebody like we've had this thing this year with people just randomly getting pushed to the ground at the bus stop and getting injured like just completely random anyway I'm I'm, I'm getting uh, distracted so I'm very interested in forum when Bina spoke to to Phil in the in Malarkey and she told her, Don't let them put anything in your mouth. Don't let them put anything up the other end either. That's a warning. Right? To go back to our the start of this conversation, when we die, we could leave behind like a really useful list of warnings. We could say, hey, like if we were having chats about death, it could be like, right, well, I'm gonna go over on Thursday to Auntie Mabel and she's gonna give me her warnings. Right. Like I right now would have a few warnings about being a 50 year old woman, you know, not warnings against it because, you know, it's not it's certainly not bad being a 50 year old woman. But, you know, I'd have like things that I might say and it could be very simple things like, you know, watch your your socks could get very wet in the kitchen. You know, if you're not careful around the sink, they could be very benign, banal things. So I thought a lot. It was actually the language of warnings that really shaped it. I started to think. Okay, what does a warning look like? What is, because for me it's all about language, like what can I do with language? And so I actually sort of, I think the shape of the text came more from that. And also I like this idea of an epic, but you know, most of the time I only realize these things once I finish the book. I'm not cognizant of them while I'm writing. I'm usually just deeply frustrated thinking, I'm never going to have a book. This is a disaster. What am I doing? I can't even find it. Most of the time, you know, I've renamed 1,500 documents, weird names, and I can't find them. And in my head, I'll remember, oh, remember that one line about a badger? You know, and then I'll never, ever find it. Uh, I just lose chunks of my books everywhere. And I just kind of rather like, actually, kind of like this the way I am in this conversation, you know, just end up all over the place. And then at a certain point, somehow I just maybe I just panic and think I ought to shut this down <laughs> <laughs> I shut this down or they're gonna come for me like I'm gonna get sectioned <laughs> but I would shut this down um although we don't even we don't even have that opportunity anymore <laughs> um nobody comes for you anymore
0: right? <laughs> um well I, I want to say this is a book that sort of teaches you how to read it as you go and that places it in you know a unique category there aren't that many books that i've read that feel that way but there are some and it's like it you know i got into it and i started to learn her voice you kind of have to learn her voice and then once you once you lock into that then you know the the plot and all of the all of its concerns kind of unfold for you i also noticed and maybe this is just my brain playing tricks on me but i felt like there were repeating patterns in the book like yeah, you know are-
1: Definitely refrains. Refrains are a feature of my work. The earlier books, the second book was built entirely off a series of five refrains. And in that way, I think I do have like liturgical, like, almost like, you know, I, I grew up a Catholic. So, you know, the language that I heard in terms of faith and worship, I think that definitely created, you know, an impact on my relationship with language. So I do think I draw maybe from the liturgical form, which sounds kind of bizarre because I'm not particularly in this moment, in day and age, a person of faith, but I have a lot of respect for people of faith. And I still think the, you know, the earliest kind of serial narrative is the Bible. You know what I mean? Like, uh, it kind of goes on for a long time. You know, they don't just shut it down after one series. It sustains itself into multiple books, and I was actually found that very interesting. Uh, recently, I did actually read a bit of the Bible, and I was just stunned by just how kind of raunchy it is. It's very raucous and raunchy the Bible, especially the early parts, like the whole Sodom and Gomorrah part. Anyway, sorry. I find religious texts very interesting. I don't really like spend a lot of time with them. So, yeah, there are refrains, and there are things that I was kind of picking up from earlier novels. And then they were just like, they're little. Again, I, I do practice this new emerging form called self-divilment, where, you know, so for example, in Martin John, a, a writer had asked me, Is this book in conversation with Beckett's Murphy? And I said, No. But then I thought, Oh, what an interesting idea so what I did do is I took like a title I think of one of Beckett's other books and kind of in a strange hidden homage to that person asking me that question I put throughout Viner just I repeat that riff and it's like I do that quite a lot in my first novel I was trying to think about disparate disparate things so i thought what's the most disparate thing that i can think of at this moment and it was during kind of the the invasion of iraq and george bush and and it was like you know syria because that was pre the the war in syria the current Bashad situation this was when syria was being kind of described as the axis of evil and it was all you're with us or you're against us or you're with the terrorists it was all this very kind of i mean God, compared to what's come since, I don't even know where that rhetoric sat. But right. it was, uh, you know what I mean? It was just like, do we think it could possibly get any more crazy? No. And it did. And it did, right. So we must race for the fact that it's probably going to get even crazier. So I thought about that and I thought, well, Syria and then Balina, which is the town nearest where my mother lives in the west of Ireland. And I was trying to think, okay, how can I put them on the page together? And... Because I was, I was, I was kind of inspired, or I was, you know, I was like pricked mentally by D.H. Lawrence and the way that he did um, colliery managers or mine managers and Japanese wrestling. So that's where that came from. So when people talk about plot, I have no clue what they mean. You know, it's so boring for me to think about plot. When people talk about plot, I'm like, plot, what's that like? (laughs) what the hell's plot what's the point of plot and even recently you know i saw somebody one of my students was mentioning character motivations i was just like that's just mad you don't you don't push that stuff from the outside in you do that from the inside out right get that voice get the ticking of that brain and you you've got the motivations
0: so wait so bina so people are oriented bina is a 74 year old woman and yes. She lives in rural Ireland, correct?
1: She does. She lives in the west of Ireland, in County Mayo. And Bynum is a very unique character in, in fiction because she's not looking for a boyfriend. Like She's done. She's, she's had enough. Basically, Bynum has had e- enough. She's like a fantastic volcano. You know what I mean? And she just, like, gives out. and And, you know, she's a woman in her own right, living a life. On her terms, and along the way, a few things get in the way. She has a few. She's a few problems.
0: Well, and one of the problems is Eddie, who is described in the book as her sorta son.
1: Right, and that goes back to the first book because there's a scene in the first book where this man, Eddie, it's very vague, but then I built it onwards. Yeah, and he's her sorta son, you know. And I do think that's true that people do have sort of you know, children. And, and we do, like, lumber ourselves with characters. We do, like, end up taking on people who a really bad idea. <laughs> just <laughs> like humans again. We just have this kind of, we love to just, like, invite disasters into our lives. And so Bina, essentially, Eddie crashed his motorbike into her wall and then somehow she ended up taking him in. And so he's become her sort of son. She can't get rid of him. So the only way she finally manages to get rid of him is she has to become kind of, she has to do something, she has to be worse than him, right? And he's awful, this, this sort of son. He, and,
0: he, he uh, abuses her.
1: Yeah, he's a violent presence. He's, he's, he's um, erratic. He's volatile. You know, and this isn't, like, uncommon. Do you know what I mean? It's not uncommon. I saw a thing in the newspaper this weekend where they said they lifted some restrictions and nightclubs reopened. And the, it, and the the headline was something like pubs and nightclubs reopened to a landscape of violence, you know? And so I thought, wow, that's so interesting. You know, everyone's complaining because they can't go out. And now they let them out. Now all they want to do is like, bite and like smack each other around the
0: head <laughs> i've heard i've heard it said more than once by friends of mine i, I might have even said it is that like i got to learn how to be social again you know this this feeling what, With the, with the pandemic sort of yeah cordoning us off from one another you know you sort of lose the rhythm of what it's like to be around lots of people so maybe that's part of it maybe people go back to a nightclub and it's you know it's like you know it's like overload or something
1: yeah, I I wonder if actually we might be facing a time where we have to like actually, you know, like we maybe we're actually like going to end up being like the first humans again. You know, we're going to be the new, hu- the new first humans. Like we're going to be like, oh, look at that. I've got feet. I've got, you know, <laughs> Jesus. And uh, there's a road. And how do I do this? And, you know, I do feel like there's some kind of interesting. I think there was another thing I read somewhere yesterday. It was like, is it too soon for novelists to tackle the pandemic? Oh, please. And, oh, please. Could we just stop? Like, really calm down the bell. Like, you know, I mean, I don't think the average reader's sitting around, you know, getting, oh, God, it's too soon. I'm not ready. It's too soon, you know. It's so bloody difficult to write a novel for anybody who's actually sat down and actually written one, you know, that wasn't necessarily... You know, well, they're all difficult, even if you write one that's, you know, like, you know, where the terms are are very understood as in a very genre novel or something. they're still really hard to write, like when they're when you're trying to work at a high level. It doesn't matter what you're writing. I always love it when people say, well, I'm going to write a romance. You just think, good luck. Yeah. Like, yeah. There's have a, fun. That's <laughs> actually really difficult to write all of it, to be honest, really difficult to write you're better off to learn, like how to read tarot cards or how to grow a marrow or something this makes like, me this think is... that
0: this makes me think that i would actually be interested in reading a romance like a, a, a like some kind of book about romance by by you that would be such an un... uh... i mean th- thinking about what you said about uh like weddings and not really liking them or believing in them and that would be and... i just
1: think there's too much emphasis on it and i feel like yeah maybe it will have to be a science fiction romance because I feel like the single people are are like these, these aliens now. And yet the single people are actually out there having a great fucking time. And so we tell we're not interested in your, your wives and your husbands and your, you know, we're more probably interested in your border collies. (laughs) I used to have a border collie. You know, I just, yeah, it's true. I I should write. Yeah. A kind of romance, anti-romance, but I must admit a writer once wrote me a message on Twitter and said, Where's the love in your books? I wrote back and said, there's no love, mate. Sorry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's completely but, void.
1: Um, it's true, though. I think my, the book that I'm writing at the moment kind of does ask questions about human and, you know, and the hu- and human relationships, as in, you know, are they doomed? Is it over? Because I genuinely do think online dating could end the human race.
0: Why? Just because it's just so, like, I feel like the, just the swiping, it's like, it's such a brutal act. Like, no,
1: yeah. the swiping is fine because you're forgetting that in the swiping, you get to admire people's furniture. Sometimes you get to meet their grandmas, right? For me, the swiping is kind of, usually I'm not really really paying attention to the person. I'm just wondering what's that object in the background and how can people have such unattractive shower curtains? Like, where <laughs> do you procure? such an unattractive shower curtain like like really and, and
0: why is it on your dating profile
1: that's not the worst thing you can find on a dating profile <laughs> you know a lot of people look like they're minutes from death on a dating profile literally they're hanging off the side of a cliff with their legs in the air like that's no way for a human to be so that would be an interesting vantage point i mean i've just been reading patricia lockwood's book and she does real oh, she's really funny oh my god she's so funny that yeah. woman She is so funny. I possibly collapsed a lung reading like five paragraphs of her book. I think she's doing really interesting work. And there's a lot of writers like I I really love some of the Argentine and Latin American writers. They're very playful. They're very ludic. I like this kind of, you know, I like this playful side. I mean, I think that's another thing. I often wonder, like, how can people be so serious in these books? You know, they can be terribly earnest. But, I mean, you're not going to last long on the planet. How do you last? Well, actually, you would last if you actually had, I don't know, you'd have, like, maybe a really good paying job. Then you could be earnest. You know what I mean? It could be goal-oriented. But you wouldn't last very long doing some of the jobs I've done. Like cleaning floors, being a cleaner or working at the supermarket, how long would you last if you took yourself way too seriously and you took some of these obnoxious people coming at you, complaining about the you know color of chicken breasts or <laughs> whatever, or I don't like this it's got something in it with the letter p or um, you know is this can you give me bacon that's not bacon i don't I don't like the look of this you know or whatever. You know, humans are just mad. They're just mad. We now, the internet has actually offered us for the first time in the history of humans a true, almost like democratic canvas uh, at how completely insane we are.
0: I completely agree. I, I, In fact, I've had that in my head as we've been talking. It's something I say often. I feel like social media has been so disruptive for a lot of reasons, but one of which is that it, it's showing people as they are like kind of unfiltered and you know people feel at liberty to divulge their opinions or their dark thoughts or their criticisms in ways that they wouldn't in person or you know or previous to social media so we're kind of getting a picture of what people really think and how insane they are often you know
1: don't you think that there was evidence of this like i mean i don't know I mean, the Vikings, like, tramping around, like, with their axes probably weren't a barrel of fun. If you got, like, stuck in a cave with one of them and they're like, give me back my whistle. Give me back my bucket. I get it.
0: But it's different when you're reading it, over, like, in just, like, a deluge, you know? Like, just, like, over and over and over again every day. It's just, I think it's done things to the ways that we relate to one another.
1: But that said, one of the great things about the internet is it has also shown us, you know, how inadequate humans are compared to, for example, birds. Like, because you get to see, like, in the old days before, you know, people had Instagram and you only saw the birds that you saw in where you lived. You only saw the type of robin that rocked up in your area. You never would have seen, like, kestrel nests or something. So I feel a bit like... Well, I don't feel a bit like I feel absolutely convinced that for humans really to make any progress, we need feathers like that's my conclusion. And I want to thank the Internet for helping me realize the superiority of a penguin, the superiority of a puffin, the superiority of a donkey, a giraffe like these animals are so clever, so clever. My God, how would I have known about, like, blood pressure in the neck of a giraffe if it wasn't for the internet? That would have been complicated. What do you
0: mean, blood pressure in the neck of a giraffe?
1: Well, you know, I mean, I watched it in Spanish on YouTube, and my Spanish isn't that good. (laughs) (laughs) I watched this long explanation about what happens with the blood pressure in the neck of a giraffe. And it's more complicated than it looks, right? When a neck goes down, certain flaps open and close, and... All those zoologists listening right now are just embarrassed for me. Well, you listen, know.
0: That, that makes sense to me. That's a long neck. You've got to like, get like, blood up there.
1: My point is that that's like the wonderful thing about it. Also, social class. I feel like the Internet, you know, you never, for example, if you grew up poor and maybe your parents or your mother like, wasn't like a classical music aficionada, well, you might not have met Bach, right? Whereas now you could run into Bach accidentally, Like on YouTube, like YouTube allows us like access to and nothing like as well, like great literature, like the the, if you look at like open culture or some of these places, you can listen to Borges eight hours of lectures. Like imagine you were born in 1971. Like, how would you have accessed those lectures? Well, you'd have had to either have like gone to university to study English and hopefully some professor would have, I don't know, brought in a tape recorder and taped it off the radio or, you you know what I mean? So, so this is kind of tricky because you're right. On the one hand, we have the deluge of of our, of unfortunately ourselves, (laughs) but the other side of it is we also have the deluge of like great art, fantastic birds. I'm sure there are people listening who really happy about the recipes. Sure. I'm not one of them. I'm an oatmeal person.
0: Listen, listen, I just had this experience the other night. You talk about YouTube, which is so vast. It's almost to be infinite, you know, in terms of what is available there. And I will often fall asleep these days watching, like, travel-related YouTube videos. Like, that's just, you know, anesthetizing to me. It's, you know, I like to travel and it's fun to, like, learn about foreign cities or whatever. And so I started watching these uh, videos about like Madrid and there's a woman, you know, speaks great English, who's like talking about her expatriated life in Madrid and she has all of her favorite spots and she kind of takes you on a tour. Mm -hmm. And these videos tend to be like 10 minutes long and then one of them will end and YouTube like automatically plays the next one. So you can sit Mm -hmm. there and just watch, you know, video after video on like, you know, in an automated mode. But what was interesting is that as the videos progressed, I guess they were working chronologically, this woman starts talking uh, all of a sudden about how she just got a divorce and then COVID hit and she's living Mm -hmm. on her own for the first time since she was 23. And it gets like really sad, Mm -hmm. but like also really human. (laughs) And like, before, whereas before it was just sort of these like, you know, like happy, sunny travel Mm -hmm. videos. And then suddenly I was like invested in her life. Mm And it felt like this, there was something poignant about it. It might've had something to do with the fact that I was awake at one in the morning or whatever, watching YouTube. (laughs) I I was just suddenly like, Oh man, like there's a human being on the other end of the line. It's not just about like, you know, her favorite uh, dessert at her local restaurant Mm. or whatever. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's infinitely surprising sometimes too, what can happen uh, when you, you get lost in it.
1: Yeah. But I don't know. The other side of it all is, well, people have never had so many opportunities to be connected and yet they've never been more disconnected. Right. So you've got to love the contradictions in it. And I mean, the contradiction is an excellent literary device. Like there's nothing more contradictory than the human being. And the contradictions are actually really a more centrifugal force in Mina. because on the one hand, she is leaving her kitchen to help other people So what Bina is, she's a member of this like, sort of like an illegal underground right to die group who go around and assist people. Obviously, it's fiction. I just want to make that clear. I'm not going around assisting anybody. And in any case, medical assistance in dying is legal in Canada. You know, it's very, very regulated and it's very specific. So I was using this in a fictional context. And so you see Bina going into other people's kitchens to relieve their suffering and yet she also is suffering herself in her own kitchen. And she can't she can't relieve that suffering. She can't get rid of Eddie. She can't like reclaim her 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 space, her kitchen. Like and I think that's fundamentally true generally about humans.
0: Oh and she's like, also she's also grieving.
1: Yeah, she is. To be honest now, it's a well while since I read the book. <laughs>
0: Well, but But she's, she's, but her relationship with Phil, I mean, it's Philomena. It's, yeah, but she calls her Phil.
1: Yeah, it's true. Yeah, because her, so her friend asks basically for assistance. So, you know, it's the question like, well, you can help that person, can help this person. And now this person who is your friend says, well, what about me? Will you help me? You know, because Philomena has some you know, illness. I'm not specific about it because i like to leave that up to the reader. I have great faith in readers. I think readers' imaginations is often better than writers. So allow the reader to come to the book and complete that aspect of that that area of, of the narrative for themselves. And then what's so interesting is afterwards readers come and tell you, well, this is what I think was going on. And it's definitely more interesting than anything I would have come up with. Uh, so, I'd rather have like 500 possibilities like that than spell it out like pedantically, um, which again is another infantilizing element in literature where they're, they're sort of platitudinal, where it's just all platitudes. No, 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 just leave it. Let the reader come in and complete that. So, of course, she by now has like an enormous problem with this because she doesn't want her friend to die. She 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 needs her friend actually to keep living in order that she can carry on living because, of course, she's living in in a very difficult circumstance with this volatile stranger who she took in this this man who she can't get rid of. So in an, in essence, like she she doesn't want to help her friend because that's the that's who she's going to go to. Who's she going to talk to? Who's going to help her? That's the fact. Nobody's going to save Bina. Nobody's coming to help Bina nobody bina is in her world and she's the person who basically has to plow on through you know until either she has a massive heart attack or god knows what you know she gets like run over by a tractor or something like you know she's an older older woman and so yeah so that again is this this conundrum is this philosophical kind of dilemma which again brings us back to the where we started in this conversation because the question of somebody choosing to take their own life like for example like this is another thing that you kind of enter when you deal with this is the question of can you ex you know what what role what's your role as far as accepting that was the person's decision and I, I personally found that very difficult
0: okay so when you're talking about a person taking their own life are you referring to suicide or are you referring to like end of life like euthanasia
1: well they're very very different things but i would imagine the challenge is exists in both so for example let's say your friend's partner relative took their life and you like by suicide then at a certain point like do you 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 will reach a point where you'll ask yourself well do i should i just accept that that person made an informed like a choice right whereas then also with medical assistance in dying your relative is actually making an informed choice that they're able to articulate to you Um, and there's a process in place and you still may not accept it right the difference is you can have a conversation about it and they're not acting from a place of necessarily a place of deep, deep despair or distress, right? They've, they've just, they're, they're, you know, and expecting to die imminently from some like often painful, miserable disease, but they're exercising autonomy and saying, okay, I want to die like three Thursdays from now, you know, not along the um, timeline of whatever this terminal disease decides. So they're very, very different. And I'm very wary of conflating the two of them. But I could can see that intellectually you could still be asking yourself, it's not the same question, but you're still trying to, I don't know, accept someone's autonomy. I mean, it's a bit of a strange one. It's very, I mean, thinking about suicide's it's so emotional for me that I, I have such a hard time even introducing the notion of a rational, informed choice. But just because I have an emotional problem with the idea of it doesn't mean it doesn't rationally, it isn't a rational argument. You you know what I mean? People Mm. could say, well, who are you to decide that your friend should have lived another whatever years? I think if you're um, suffering intolerably, you're not probably going to be able to learn anything except
0: that this hurts. (laughs) and hurts,
1: (laughs) And you know, you don't have any dignity. It's just, but there's no, you know, and then and, and the very notion that there's through suffering comes transcendence. If you're 90 years old or 80 years old and you've lived a long old life, frankly, I think that's plenty transcendence. <laughs> or for that matter, if you're young and you're living with like some disease that's going to get very much worse, there's a couple of um, the civil liberties uh, have a couple of cases. I've had a couple of cases over the years of people, you know, in d- different circumstances. And I know this is controversial, but there are countries where they recognize like mental suffering. Uh, I think Belgium is one and maybe, maybe Holland, but but don't quote me on that, you know. And some of those uh, cases, there was a really excellent film. I think it was on The Economist magazine of a young woman who had like severe, severe mental illness. And she applied for the right, to have an assisted death because her suffering was intolerable and she actually secured that Um, she got she got uh, approved and so she went through and she was planning and then in the end she actually changed her mind so which is a very good example of if you actually allow people to engage in a process the outcome it's not defined. Like, even when people apply for medical assistance in dying, up until the moment, they're free to change their minds. It's not like you apply. And then, <laughs> it's like, you, know, you, you know, sign the contract. Sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, there's no turning back. No, sorry. There's a, You know, it's not like you're going into the car wash and there's four Ford Escorts behind you. <laughs> you're free to change your mind. And, and so, I, I guess, I mean... I mean, it's interesting because I I feel like within this conversation, of course, we're coming up against, you know, you know, you you, you can posit one thing and then 10 minutes later you find yourself totally contradicting what you just posited, (laughs) which again is an interesting literary uh, form because we were talking about the deluge of the internet. We were talking about like the fact that people maybe don't have any um, radar or because they can hide. But you know, I'm sort of in, in favor. Um, I think people should, you know, have a choice about it, but of, of having difficult conversations about very difficult topics rather than turning away from them. Like I'm not proposing that it be mandated that everybody has to have a very difficult chat every Monday, but, but like that, like why not enter a process where you think about how you want your life to, to, how you want your final days to, to be. You don't necessarily have to hurry towards them or, or, you know, I don't think it's, it's maybe it's also see it could be the artistic inclination, which sounds a little kind of pompous. But but there has to be a reason why some people get up in the morning or the afternoon or the middle of the night and are compelled to write novels like there's no good reason for doing this like right now out there in the world nobody's gonna notice if i never write another book right the only person who's gonna notice is if you owe them money and even then at a certain point they might be like do you know what keep your mind keep it keep it just don't come out us with another book i'm kidding but y- y- you know what i mean like that there is an incline there's like a there's just like an inclination there's an there's an urgency, really, to 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 you know explore a process. And that, that's another conversation we should have. The people who stop writing novels. I'd like to hear from those people. I'd like to hear. I'd like to hear from people who wrote a, a novel. I mean, it would have to be a novel that you know had some merit, not just like because we could just you know basically every other person has you know, a novel under the bed or whatever, but like something that had some literary merit. And then, then the person, the writer just said, right, that's it. I'm not doing that anymore. This is a ridiculous waste of time. I'm going <laughs> to play a badminton or ping pong, or I'm going to learn how to swim, or I'm going to try to grow feathers. Or, Do you see my point? Like, I would like to know what, what is in that. Inclination doesn't seem to be quite the right word. What is the word that I'm looking for? It's very similar to people who want to do the high jump or the shot pot. Like at a certain point, like that's really hard on the arms. Why are you keeping doing like basketball, basketball? I understand. Cause that's, you know, a passion, but
0: you love basketball.
1: I love basketball. I'm a late convert to basketball. Who's your team? Well, there's a bit of a history with my team because I discovered basketball at the local kebab shop. See, I played netball when I was young, which is a sport that I don't know if they really play it in North America, but it's girls play it. Like volleyball? No. It's like basketball, but you're not allowed to bounce it. And there's no backboard. And I think the net is a little bit lower, but I'm not sure. And I just want to say, 1983, wing attack, left on the bench. (laughs) Hashtag never forget. So, you know... I was a really good wing attack, and I was maligned. So I feel like my midlife crisis hasn't been a crisis. It's just been about discovering the sport of basketball. There's no crisis As a spectator. As a spectator. Basketball is a very literary sport. You look at all those lines. Think about the idea of a play. How is that not like a sentence, right? I like my favorite thing about basketball is the passing Right. I love the passing and the, the bouncing. That bouncing, like, seriously, that is just, that's so much like a sentence. I mean, unfortunately, I've become a little bit of a toxic. I've, I've embraced toxic masculinity, apparently, because now I've started to care whether or not we win or lose. <laughs> For the longest time, I didn't give a damn. And I got so excited about the other team. I mean, I still get excited about the other team because there's nothing like the lines of it and the sound and the rhythm. And I love that there isn't all that hugging and kissing. Sorry, they're phenomenal. The
0: they're football. phenomenal athletes. These professional basketball players. It's incredible.
1: But there's no hugging and kissing. Like you get a basket, boom, boom. You got to boom, boom down the other ends because they're getting a basket down there. Whereas like hockey, soccer, they get a goal and it's like, okay, now we're going to break for ten minute. You know, I got to take basketball.
0: my shirt off and uh... I don't
1: want all that. I just want, <laughs> I want more passing. I just love the passing. Just keep don't even score any baskets. Just keep passing the ball around and bouncing it. I, I think it's such, I think it's so interesting. It's so balletic. It's so, it's like contemporary dance. Oh. And then I just think about those sentences. They remind me, I mean, sorry, those plays. They remind me of iambic pentameter. Do, do you know what I mean? This is I, the I
0: nerdiest was, take on basketball ever. I, I mean, will say,
1: <laughs> I always manage to come up with some unique position. No, <laughs> virtually. No, this is my actual talent my actual true talent is for never agreeing with anybody like case in point, Adam driver. Don't like him. Don't like him. Don't want to watch him in movies. Can't, can't bear him. How many people in the world, how many women in the world feel that way about Adam driver? One,
0: (laughs) one. You're the one. (laughs)
1: That's it. Poor man. He's never done anything to me. I just find him so annoying. That poor man. And I've only ever watched 11 minutes of him doing something. But this is a very, very bold, robust position on Adam Driver.
0: That is. I feel like he's... I feel like he... I like him in comedy best. I think when he does, like, funny stuff, it's... it's Comedy?
1: He does comedy? I saw him in this awful 11 minutes of a film that everybody got excited about, which was him with his scarf on, whining at the top of a stair, goes, you don't understand me. <laughs> I think it was Los Angeles, right? It was like, <laughs> poor old Scarlett Johansson was at the top, you know, with Oh, airbrush. that's the
0: divorce movie. It's a marriage. It's
1: or so awful. Oh. I was just like, it's so awful, that movie, except for the, the mother and the sister who come in and out. But they're in and out like, in two minutes,
0: I didn't see it when
1: they're trying to serve the papers. I had to listen. It's been a long recovery process from that eleven minutes of Adam Driver. <laughs> you know what's going to happen someday? One of my books will be made into a movie, and they will say, "And we're and we're casting Adam Driver." <laughs> and, and Adam and Driver then, is
0: Eddie.
1: <laughs> Adam Driver is Bina. Adam <laughs> Driver is Martin John. We're casting Adam Driver, and then I'm going to have to confront. I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to like face up. To all of these ideas I've just spent all this time sharing with you about how she would stare things down like death and misery. And and I will, lo and behold, be faced to stare down my animosity towards the innocent Adam Driver, beloved Adam Driver.
0: He might charm you. What if you meet him? He could charm you and change your your mind.
1: No, I've got such a deep, deep (laughs) reticence about Adam Driver. I mean, almost to the point where... Yeah, I need a vaccination. (laughs) I need to be vaccinated about my... I've got Adam Driver hesitancy. Not vaccination hesitancy. It's not even... Vaccination can't even help me. It's going to need, like, some sort of horse y potion. You know, I'm going to have to be injected with, I don't know, bovine. They're just going to have to go into my brain and just delete that part. (laughs) And poor old Adam Driver, he's probably a lovely man with a large afghan hound that he walks <laughs> in los angeles probably reads two or three papers a day i probably think he i
0: think he lives in new york i think he's in okay. new york guy. yeah
1: all right okay maybe not okay so maybe he's not outside with afghan hounds oh, i'm
0: seeing i'm feeling the afghan hound i just think it's in brooklyn i think it's in like brooklyn heights
1: yeah i mean but you know he's probably you know he's probably nice to old people Do you know what I mean? He's probably like, it's probably people in the park. Like, Oh, look at that man with his Afghan hound. (laughs) Oh, he's very decent. Look, he's, he's probably donating to art organizations in the New York city area. Like he's probably doing, he's probably, you know, very nice to cashiers especially the face blind ones who don't know who he is. Like the, <laughs> that's the other great part of the Adam driver narrative is I'm pretty face blind. So it might not have even been Adam driver, but you know, I'm a novelist. So that doesn't matter. I <laughs> make it up, Adam. So yeah. this
0: means if you ever saw me on the street, you wouldn't recognize me. Probably.
1: You know, I would, because I might, because of your voice, but no, it's a very embarrassing problem. And Brad, myself... Brad Pitt
0: has this. Did you know Brad Pitt has face blindness?
1: I didn't know that. But you yeah. say that very handy given some of his marital trials. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like,
0: well, I, I just think of it in terms of like being in Hollywood and working with all these people and like, you know, you show up for the Oscars and some actor you comes up. To you, you don't know who they are. You can't even remember their face.
1: Well, that's one of the reasons why I've actually stopped watching movies, really, except Penguin, and Rhino and Hippo documentaries. And I do love Michaela Cole. I think Michaela Cole was a bloody genius. I uh, watched everything Michaela Cole ever does
0: wait I'm just like why do I not know who why do I not know who Michaela Cole is oh my
1: goodness oh my goodness oh my goodness I need a fire extinguisher I need something I need something strong to hold on to you know who she is she made chewing gum she made they may destroy you 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 know who she is she's a genius
0: is she an actor or a director
1: she's both she's a writer she's an actress and she's a director you know her she won a. she she won as far as I'm concerned she won everything because I don't really follow. I mean, I have such a hard time recognizing people. My son says, Yeah, Mommy, it's because you haven't watched a movie in 125 years. <laughs> I'm like, I have, you know, I watched 11 minutes of an Adam Driver movie. And I'm so traumatized. Every time I always say, Is that Adam Driver? Every time he turns something on, I'm like, Is that Adam Driver? Is that him? <laughs> Turn it off. <laughs>
0: Well, Anna Kana, I have enjoyed talking with you, and uh, I feel like I just want to encourage listeners, you've got to read this book. It's, it's such a unique piece of work, and I find that it presents challenges, like linguistically, trying to talk about it or to describe it. You sort of have to experience it. I don't know if anyone has ever told you that before, but it is very very much itself. You know, it's hard to find even corollaries. Samuel Beckett, you said his name earlier. I found myself thinking of Beckett a little bit as I was reading it. But it is, um, you know, in Bina, you have created a really singular uh, narrator and character. And you've kind of, you know, you've got this entire universe going with your books now, where there's interlocking parts and intersecting characters and I'm wondering if the one that you're working on now, if you can give us any clues, like what philosophical quandary are you delving into here? Are there characters that you have worked with before who are reemerging or making a new appearance?
1: Well, originally, I wanted to write a quartet of novels, and so actually, I what I sold these books to Knopf Canada as was as a, like a diptych, and I wanted to write two books at the same time, so published simultaneously. So that I wanted the reader to have like an interesting reading experience. Now, then I wrote Bina. Well, I wrote kind of both of them simultaneously, but Bina. I finished a draft of Bina, and then I just thought, okay, she's some woman for one woman. Why would you put her kind of on some sort of, you know, like she, she people will just be only interested in what's in between the novels more than how they sit. Like individually, I think Knopf and were really, really happy that he move ahead with this plan. That to be honest, no publisher wants to do this. Like, this is not a good idea for publishers.
0: What to publish? Pub- to publish two books simultaneously? I you know,
1: why to do like a, a diptych? So then I had this dilemma because, and this is the novel that's currently ruining my life. Um, there's always a long, protracted period of time. Where these books just ruined my life. Uh, the first one it was a ten year period. The second one was a bit shorter. And the third one was a bit shorter. It was like ten, I think, five and three years. And this one has this one that I'm working on at the moment is uh is we're going into year six or year five since I started working on this one. And originally it was Eddie. Eddie, it was I was gonna pick up Eddie. But I don't know what happened. I've just recalibrated so many times with this book that I'm working on. And right now, I don't know where Eddie is. He's like, he's in the outdoor toilet somewhere. He's not really in the book. (laughs) Um, And this book is set, it's set in Vancouver, in theory, although increasingly I'm starting to think that I don't think it needs to be. Um, so this one is kind of like a more architectural work. It's quite different. And so it's really causing me an awful lot of problems. And if there's anybody out there, got a bit of time on their hands, <laughs> wants to finish this book for me, get in touch.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, Progressively,
1: you... like, as long as you're not Adam Driver, you know, and we're not going to start having, like, fights about Adam Driver. So it's, you know, it's it's different. It's kind of... <laughs> Was supposed to be like labor, housing, you know, it's maybe back to sexuality a bit. My first book was very, had a very strong kind of, you know, through line about sexuality. And then the second one was, you know, it was really, then Martin John is a, you know, a sex offender. And then Bina is just, you know, Beowulf, rural Irish Beowulf. <laughs> and so this one is a little more looking at kind of humans actually it's also looking at the idea of the intellect as a kink but that's not working out very well so i don't think that's gonna necessarily fly but we'll see i'm i'm i'm, I'm getting close i'm getting close on it
0: well i wish you well and i thank you for your time it's been fun to talk with you and, and to meet you and congratulations on all the success that you've had not just with bina but with all of your books
1: well i so appreciate you being interested in talking to me about basically anything Bina, you know dying, Adam Driver (laughs) Basketball
0: It's been my pleasure Um,
1: This has been really fun and uh, I do apologize for my husky tones but you know I was at only the second wedding dinner I've ever been invited to in 50 years I think it'll be my last as well I I don't want to be making a habit of it all right, thanks a million. Uh, thanks a lot to Americans, American readers. I love Americans, they're great.
0: All right, that is Anakana Schofield. Her new novel is called Bina. It is a New York review book. You can find Anakana on the internet at anakanaschofield.com. You can follow her on Twitter at Anna Schofield. Just leave the D off. She's also on Instagram. One more time, the book is called Bina, B-I-N-A. Go get your copy right away. The Other People podcast is offered freely. The entire archive of this show is available online and on YouTube and via the Other People app. It's all for free, almost 800 episodes and counting. If you listen regularly, if you like this show, if you get something from it, I hope you will consider supporting it. You can do that for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash other ppl pod if you like the content throw a dollar in the hat throw two throw three throw five throw ten whatever you can swing it helps keep the show going patreon.com slash other ppl pod and you should know too that you can get stuff a t-shirt a tote bag a book club subscription coffee mug There are different tiers, different levels of support. Check it out over at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash other PPL pod. Don't forget, too, that my book is available for pre-order. My new novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Just go to bradlisty.com, pre-order it from whatever bookseller you prefer. Send me a screenshot of your proof of purchase and I'll send you another people sticker in the mail. What do you think of that? Be sure to check out the Other People app. This show has its own official app. It's free. The Other People with Brad Listy app. Go search for it wherever you do your app searching. Don't forget, too, to sign up for the email newsletter over at otherppl.com or BradListy.com. And don't forget about the Other People YouTube channel. It has every single episode there on YouTube. The entire archive is on YouTube. Go to the other PPL with Brad Listy channel, search for it by name, and then hit the subscribe button. It's free. All right? Okay. Lots to look forward to. Some good conversations in the offing. Thanks for listening, you guys. I will be back in a week with more.